I would invite you to take your Bible with me and turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6 for this second part of the message, the saving judge. The saving judge. Our text is Genesis chapter 6 verses 5 to 8, which takes us from the barren wasteland of human depravity to the mystery of the emotional life of God, and it crescendos to the glorious heights of God's grace. Let's pray as we begin. Lord, your word says that the natural man is incapable of understanding the things of God. But that if we are in Christ, we have the mind of Christ. We are indwelled by the Spirit. And you make known the things of God to us. And so we confess, I confess, that we cannot look at a passage like this in our own intellect, with our own strength, we desperately need your spirit to illumine our minds, to give us understanding. And Lord, if there are any here today who are still dead in their sin, would you use even this text to open their eyes? Amen. Just six chapters into the Bible, this passage introduces for us the most catastrophic event in all of human history, second only to the fall of man. The historical account of the flood is recounted from about verse 11 here in chapter 6 through the end of chapter 9. But in our text, chapter 6 verses 5 through 8, we're given a theological basis for the flood, meaning we're told what went on in the heart and in the mind of God that resulted in the flood, as well as the saving of Noah and his family. This is what we're after in our series, Behold Your God. We want to know God. To the degree that He's revealed Himself to us, we want to understand Him what he is like, how he thinks, how he acts. Because the more that we know him, the higher we can rise in worship. The more that we know him, the more that we can trust him. The more that we know him, we can give all of ourselves to him, no matter the cost. And so if you're there, follow along with me as I read chapter 6 of Genesis, verses 5 through 8. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will 
blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The children's book, What is God Like?, published in 2021 as a New York Times bestseller, and still today, two years later, is the number one bestseller on Amazon for the category Children's First Communion Religious Books. According to one reviewer, they said, It is well suited for diverse theistic audiences with varied beliefs about the Creator, their nature, and identity. This book, after describing God in ways that are somewhat consistent with Scripture, such as that He's a tender shepherd, a strong fortress, a faithful friend, and then otherwise, in other ways, teaching things that are contradictory to Scripture, such as using words and pictures to present God as a gender-fluid being. The book ends with these words. What is God like? That's a very big question that people from places all around the world throughout all time have answered in many different ways. Keep searching, keep wondering, keep learning about God. But whenever you aren't sure what God is like, think about what makes you feel safe. What makes you feel brave? What makes you feel loved? That's what God is like. If there's anything good about this book, it's that it doesn't say this is what the Bible says. In reality, this book is the product of man's imagination, and it is, in its entirety, an offense against a holy God who has revealed himself in the pages of Scripture. The authors of this book have exchanged the truth of God for the lie and are profiting over selling this book to parents to teach their children what they imagine God to be like. But you know, this is what people do all the time. They imagine God in a certain way. They live according to their view of God, and then they teach it to others formally or informally. And so the world goes round and round with false thoughts about God pervading the world. In our passage, God reveals himself to be very different from our imaginations. Compared to our imaginations, he is righteous and just beyond what we would want him to be in light of our sin. But he is also gracious and merciful beyond what we could hope in light of his justice. We'll walk through this passage one verse at a time to see four aspects of God's character as revealed here. Four aspects of God's character that are revealed in this text are these. Number one, God sees in verse five. Number two, the Lord sorrows in verse six. The Lord sentences in verse 7, and the Lord saves in verse 8. 
Now, the first two we covered last time, several weeks ago. We'll review them briefly today, and then we'll cover the final two uh, this morning. Consider the first aspect of what we learn about God here, that God sees. The Lord sees. Look again at verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Here we're given God's evaluation of the condition of humanity. They are wicked to the core. This passage brings us about 1,500 years into human history, and we know very little about those first 1,500 years. In addition to a couple bits of information that we get in chapter 4, we learn in chapter 4, verse 26, that it's the generation of Adam and Eve's grandchildren that it says they began to call upon the name of the Lord. This means that they began to worship God. But as the population grew and expanded, so did the corruption of sin that had come in as a result of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. Long life and technological advancement did not help anything to curb the sinful nature. It only intensified it to the point where 1,500 years into creation, the number of Yahweh worshipers had come down to one family, if not one man. The rest of the world went the way of the serpent in rebellion against God. Now, in saying here that the Lord saw, it does not mean that the Lord learned anything as if he had not been paying attention and all of a sudden redirected his gaze and was shocked and amazed at at what had happened to humanity. No, there was never a moment where the Lord was unaware of what was happening on the earth. Psalm 33 verses 13 to 14 give us a timely truth about God, excuse me, a timeless truth about God. It says, the Lord looks down from heaven and he sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. Just as he saw the fall of Adam and Eve, and just as he saw Cain's murder of Abel, he watched and saw as the, hu- as the corruption of humanity spread and deepened and expressed itself in more and more violent ways. But more than just observing the actions of men, we're told here that the Lord looked at their heart. And he observed that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The gaze of the Lord penetrates through the skin and the flesh to see what no doctor or surgeon can see. The heart. That is the spiritual center that drives the life of every person. If Psalm 33 reveals that God looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth, Psalm 14 too says that what He's looking for is what's in the heart. It says, The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. I remind you again of the words of Tozer, who said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. This is why God 
is more, most interested in what you understand about Him and whether you seek Him. What does God see when He looks into unredeemed humanity? Psalm 14 verse 3 then says, They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. The wickedness of man on the earth and the, the evil in the heart that the Lord sees here in Genesis 6 is not unique to that time. In chapter 8, verse 21, which we'll look at later, it tells us that that is still the condition of mankind after the flood when only Noah and his family are left. And then Psalm 14, which I just quoted, was written by David, who wrote that about a thousand years after Genesis 6. And then about a thousand years after David, Paul wrote the letter to the Romans where he quotes Psalm 14 to declare the universal condition of mankind. And that is this, that the universal condition of unredeemed humanity is that it is wicked and evil in the sight of God. This is the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity is not that mankind is as evil as he can be, but that it is evil, that evil has permeated mankind such that no aspect of our nature is untouched by it. And as a leopard cannot change its spots, so we cannot escape our sinful nature on our own. The Lord is not blind. He's not ignorant to these things. He's not distracted and unaware of what's going on in creation. He knows the wickedness that's on the earth. He sees it in the heart of man. Make no mistake. Whatever evil you've done, whatever wicked motivations have been in your heart, God sees it. You may fool others. We may fool ourselves. But we cannot fool God who sees the heart. But also know that the Lord sees the evil that is done to you. He is not unaware of the motivations of those who seek to harm you. And when God sees, whether the evil in your own heart or the evil in the hearts of others, He acts. In fact, when Scripture tells us that God sees, it is for the purpose of telling us that God is going to do something about it. Psalm 34, verses 15 to 18 says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. It says, evil shall slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. So the Lord responds to what he sees. When he sees suffering and pain, he responds with comfort and deliverance. When he sees wickedness, at the right time, he will respond with justice. Until that time, though, verse 6 tells us how the Lord feels about the wickedness that he sees. That's the second aspect of his character. The Lord 
sorrows. The Lord's sorrows. Look at verse 6. The Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth, and He was grieved in His heart. And the Lord saw the wickedness of man on the earth, and the evil in his heart would flowed out of the heart of God with sorrow and grief. Now the text doesn't tell us here what, what it is about the wickedness of man that produces sorrow in God, but it's not hard to understand based on what else we know about God from Scripture. Uh, we can understand that the Lord sorrows over the suffering that evil causes. Whenever there's a perpetrator, there's always a victim. And even though victims can be wicked in their own right, that does not minimize the reality of their suffering. You know, we, we tend to paint people as entirely the perpetrator or entirely the victim. No, they're, they're entirely wicked or they're entirely innocent and righteous. But the reality is, all of us are at the same time sinners and sufferers. And if you're a believer, you are not only a sinner and a sufferer, you're also a saint at the very same time. In 2 Corinthians 1.3, Paul refers to God, the Father, as the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. So as the God who is compassionate and merciful, He looks on the wickedness of man, He sees the destruction and the suffering that it produces, and He grieves over that. Well, the Lord not only sorrows over the suffering that's produced by evil, He sorrows over also the destruction of creation. And by this I mean the destruction of the entirety of what God has designed in creation. You see, He made the world to put on display His glory and His majesty and His creativity and His power. He made mankind to display His character and His wisdom as they ruled over the earth and, and managed it. As water reflects the sun, so all of creation was meant to reflect the glory of God. But when the fall occurred and its effects spread throughout the globe, his glory was obscured. Though man was still made in the image of God, that image was distorted such that every aspect of his nature, which God had built into mankind, became disfigured. Love was replaced by hate. Grace by revenge. Humility by pride. Peace by fear. Life by death. And we could go on. The earth itself, which was made to yield to the work of mankind as he cultivated it and grew food and managed its resources, now it worked against mankind. Romans 8.20 says that the creation was subjected to futility. It naturally grows thorns and thistles. A poisonous plants are easily confused with life-giving food. What God created and declared very good is now distorted, marred. 
a shadow of what it was intended to be. So the Lord sorrowed over the destruction of his creation wrought by mankind. That's not hard for us to understand. Even a child who builds something with Legos and sees it destroyed can understand God's sorrow in that respect. What is difficult for us to understand is that the Lord sorrows over the wickedness of man, which was his plan. I say again, the wickedness of man was his plan. Now, among the questions that that raises, some wonder how could God sorrow over his perfect will? If God wanted it to happen, how can he feel bad about it at the same time? Johnny Erickson Tata, who runs the Johnny and Friends family camp, she said it best at the 50th anniversary of her diving accident, which uh, caused her to become an, a quadriplegic. She said, sometimes God does what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Sometimes God loves or God does what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Now, we could go around this room and give testimony to how God has done things that have brought much pain in our lives, but which he has in subsequent times revealed good through it. But the chief example of God accomplishing what he hates in order to do something that he loves is when he poured out his wrath on his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There was no party in heaven the day that Christ hung on the cross. You know, Revelation 8 tells us that right before the trumpet judgments sound and God's wrath is poured out on the earth, the just judgment on mankind, there will be silence in heaven for half an hour. I don't know if that's where the idea of a moment of silence comes from, but there will be a moment of silence before God's just wrath is poured out on the earth. How much more must there have been grief and silence the day that God's wrath was poured out on His sinless, perfect, beloved Son who took our place on the cross? And yet that very act, Acts 2.23 says, was according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. That was something that was set in motion before time even began. And so in the same way that Adam and Eve sinned and cast humanity into a state of corruption and rebelled against God according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, so the, the fullest extent of man's wickedness was also according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And yet when God looks on the earth and He sees the, the wickedness and the destruction and the suffering, He sorrowed and His heart was grieved. Now what does God love that He plans to accomplish through the sinfulness of man? That's a relevant question. And we'll get to it when we get to verse 8. But verse 7 comes first. The Lord sees 
verse 5, the Lord sorrows. Next, consider how the Lord responds to his sorrow. The Lord sentences. The Lord sentences. Look at verse 7. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from animals, from man to animals, to creeping things, and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. In seeing the pervasive wickedness of man on the earth and sorrowing in his heart, the Lord sentences mankind to annihilation. God's judgment here is not a change of plan. It is a sorrowful yet just response to man's sin. The words there, I will blot, mean to wipe out or to wipe clean. The sentence on all living things as a result of their corruption is to wipe the planet clean of their stain. How is he going to do that? Well, the same way you wash most things with water. Here, his sentence is handed down. It's then carried out through the global flood as described in the rest of this chapter and into chapter 7. How do we know, by the way, that the the, uh, flood was global and not localized? Well, chapter 7 tells us exactly that. Look at verse 18 of chapter 7. It says, The water prevailed and uh, and increasingly greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. It says, The water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. If there was a mountain on the earth, it didn't matter how high it was, Mount Everest or any other mountain, it was the water covered it. And then verse 20 says, the water prevailed 15 cubits higher and all the mountains were covered. So it's not that someone could somehow make it to that top crest and just stand in you know, a foot of water and last for a period of time. No, 15 cubits is about 22 and a half feet. And then verse 24 tells us that the water prevailed upon the earth 150 days, about six months. This ensured that no air-breathing creature outside the ark could survive. People could not swim long enough. Animals couldn't paddle long enough. Birds could not fly long enough. And those that managed to float on the water as a bird might, or as someone might float on some lumber, they starved to death. Verse 23 tells us then that the sentence of death was fully carried out and completed. Look at it. It says, Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted, they were washed out from the earth. And only Noah was left together with those who were with him in the ark. When people talk about the flood these days, it's almost in every case that the focus is on whether it was a global or a local flood. And that's because the unbelieving world works overtime to deny the very obvious and overwhelming scientific evidence for a global flood. 
And tragically, many believers follow along with their conclusions. And so it's right for us to articulate and defend with clarity that the judgment was indeed global, not local. But in so doing, we often lose sight of the significance of a global flood. Namely, that it was a judgment from God where millions upon millions of men, women, and children drowned. People were plowing fields and the ground broke apart as the deeps burst open. Marriage celebrations were in full swing when the rain started to fall. The children were playing in villages, perhaps jumping in the puddles that were being created when flash floods swept them away. This was not merely a tragic catastrophe like some local flood that we even see in the world today. This was not a natural disaster like Mount Vesuvius decimating Pompeii without warning. This was the just judgment on mankind for their sin, wickedness, and corruption all over the world. Did you notice there that it wasn't only mankind that was blotted out, but also animals and creeping things and birds? Why did God kill all the animals? Look at chapter 6, verse 12. It says, God looked out on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. That's a statement that not just all people, but everything that had the breath of life, as Scripture sometimes calls it, became corrupt. And so, the all-knowing, all-wise, perfectly just, perfectly loving God determined that the wise, just, and loving response to such corruption was to blot out all living things from the face of the earth. And that's exactly what he did. Now, someone might say, I am so glad that the loving God of the New Testament is not like that angry God of the Old Testament. (laughs) Well, consider this. In Luke 17, Jesus speaks about the complete and total destruction he will bring in the future by comparing it to the flood and to Sodom when he says, And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man, speaking of himself. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. He says, it will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. As we sit here today, it's been about 4,000 years since the flood. And God promised never to flood the world again. And we're reminded of that every time we see a rainbow after it rains. But we should not think that global destruction will never happen again. Jesus himself promised it. Jesus himself will cause it. But there will always be, Scripture says, those who deny that future judgment. The Apostle Peter 
warns of mockers and scoffers who deny the, the coming judgment of God on the presumption that nothing like that has ever happened before. And in response, he writes in 2 Peter 3, 5 through 7, when they maintain this, there's no future judgment, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which, the water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So the global judgment that's here in Genesis 6 wiped all living beings off the face of the earth, save for Noah and his family and the creatures in the ark. The future judgment, though, will wipe out the material universe out of existence, after which God will create a new heavens and a new earth. The God who sentenced humanity to near extinction here in Genesis 6 is the same God whose wrath will be poured out on the earth through fire in the future. Now, as bad as that seems, it gets worse. God's judgment through the flood, God's judgment through fire of the material universe is nothing compared to the eternal sentence people will receive at the end of time. This judgment of the flood brought an end to the physical life of millions of people. But they and everyone else who dies in rebellion against God will one day be cast into the lake of fire where they will experience excruciating torment forever and ever. Revelation 13, 20, chapter 20, verses 13 to 15 says, of the time of the final judgment, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Most people struggle with this concept of a lake of fire, where again, Scripture says people will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's, it hardly seems just for us that someone's sins in this life would have everlasting consequences. But the reason we think that way is because we are blissfully ignorant of the reality and the extent of sin. The Lord in His mercy has made us incapable of hearing the cries and the groans of sufferers all around the world that He hears. Our bodies could not handle the, the trauma of being exposed to the sight of all the wickedness that takes place on the earth. But if we had the perspective of those in heaven 
we would join the chorus of those who say, Revelation 6.10, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? But even more than this, the fact that we aren't exposed to the evil that's out there, we, we struggle with the eternal sentence in the lake of fire because we think far too lightly of the offense of sin against a holy God. What God calls evil, wickedness, and rebellion, we call, yeah, it's a mistake. What God calls an abomination, we call a, a white lie. I'm just, I just give them a piece of my mind. We are so quick to excuse and minimize thoughts, words, and actions that deny the God of the universe. Spurgeon rightly identified sin as deicide, the murder of God. That means that all sin is an attempt to live as if there were no God, and if we had the ability, we would kill God and take His place. You know, Matthew 18, Jesus tells the parable of the unforgiving slave who owed the king 10,000 talents, a sum of money. And that sum equals to about 200,000 years wages for a day laborer. Interpreters question whether a slave could ever owe such a sum. And some conclude that because that seems impossible, Jesus must be exaggerating for the sake of emphasis. The truth is, whether or not a slave could owe such a sum, Jesus was not exaggerating. He used the largest number in the Greek language to make an argument from the lesser to the greater. Namely, that if a slave could be forgiven that outrageously significant debt and therefore should forgive others, how much more should we who have been forgiven a sin debt beyond measure forgive those who've sinned against the reality is the sentence of global judgment and eternal punishment will be impossible for us to comprehend and wrap our minds around until we see Christ face to face and in our glorified condition we come to see sin for the grotesque offense against God that it is. God's judgment here is not over the top. It's not excessive. It's not irrational or abusive. It is a just response to the wickedness of man. The sentence has been handed down and this is the judgment awaiting all those who die apart from Christ. So my friend, if you have not turned to faith in Christ, if you have not rejected your own attempts to make yourself right with God and instead look to Christ alone as the only Savior that is available to you to make you right with God, do that today, lest you receive the judgment from God that you deserve. The fact that God sentences is very very bad news. But there is good news. 
And that's what we see next in our text. The Lord sees, the Lord sorrows, and the Lord sentences. The fourth aspect of God's character that we see in this text is this. The Lord saves. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. The Lord saves. Look at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Though God sees the pervasive wickedness of man on the earth, and though He sorrows over the pervasive sin of man in the heart, and He sentences man to destruction, He yet saves a man and his family. The Lord directed His gaze at Noah, and He chose to extend grace. In contrast to the rest of humanity, verse 9 tells us what kind of man Noah was. It says that these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. He was a righteous man, a blameless man, and he walked with God. So righteous was Noah that he along with Daniel and Job, are three men named in Ezekiel 14 that, where the Lord says that at the height of Israel, excuse me, Jerusalem's rebellion against God and idolatry, if those three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, had lived in the city, God would spare them, but not the city. Emphasizing the righteousness of these men. But to say that Noah was righteous... And blameless is not to say that he was sinless. In chapter 9, we learn that after the flood, he planted a vineyard and made wine and got drunk and acted shamefully. Like Job also, Noah had sin in his life, even while being righteous before the Lord. In fact, if, again, if you look over at chapter 8, verse 21, you see this description that the Lord makes of the nature of man. And the Lord says, he smelled the, the soothing aroma of the sacrifice that Noah made. The Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. God makes the same assessment of mankind after the flood as he does before. And after the flood, there's only Noah and his family left. So Noah was not a sinless man, but he was a, a man who believed and obeyed God. That's what it means that he walked with God. He lived before the Lord consistently, even if imperfectly, with the revelation that he had. But because he was indeed a sinner, he deserved to be swept away by the wrath of God. But it says here, that he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That is to say that the Lord chose to extend his grace to Noah. The Lord was gracious to put Noah in a family where he would receive the knowledge of the Lord. The Lord was gracious to give Noah a heart of faith and obedience. And here the Lord is gracious to save Noah from his wrath. Noah is the first of many examples to us in Scripture that God always has a remnant. God would be just 
in the full and complete annihilation of mankind. And though he would be right not to make any exceptions ever, God always has a remnant, a people to whom he extends grace and mercy by delivering them from his wrath. In the days of the prophet Elijah, when it seemed the whole nation had turned to Baal in worship, Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal and ran away from Queen Jezebel and complained to the Lord, saying, Lord, I'm the only one left. And the Lord said, no, that's not true, Elijah. There are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. When Assyria was knocking on the door of Jerusalem, threatening to destroy the city and exile the people, as they had done with the northern tribes, the Lord made this promise. He said, then this shall be the sign for you, You will eat this year what grows of itself, and in the second year what springs from the same, and in the third year sow, reap, and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. What he's saying there is, uh, despite the fact that the Assyrian army is here, before long you're going to be out there in the fields sowing, planting, and reaping. The Lord says, The surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant and out of Mount Zion survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And God fulfilled that promise. Assyria failed to destroy Jerusalem. But over 130 years later, Babylon came. And after a two-year siege, there was a small amount of survivors. Some were taken to Babylon. Some were left in Judea to work the fields. Decades later, when exiles from Babylon came back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, Ezra learned that the Levites and the priests were defiled in that they had intermarried with other nations. And this act of disobedience disqualified them from serving in the temple. And so in response to this, Ezra prayed an emotional prayer of confession and repentance, which began with a declaration of the nation's sins that sent them out of Israel into another land. And then he he prayed this. This is Ezra 9, verse 8. He says, But now, for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. The prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel often speak about God's remnant. And like these examples I've given, they usually refer to a small number of Israelites preserved by the Lord through His judgments. But the Scripture also teaches that there is a spiritual remnant. Those whom God chooses to save from their sin and make them His. This is what Paul refers to in Romans chapter 9 when he quotes Isaiah saying, Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. This is to say that though the vast majority of Israel will turn its back on the Lord, there are yet some to whom the Lord will extend grace in saving them from their sin. And then later in Romans, Paul compares the remnant of the Jews to those who are saved, uh, excuse me, to the 7,000 in Elijah's day who did not bow the knee to Baal. And he says in Romans 11 verse 5, 
In the same way, then, there has also come to be, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. So God always has a people whom He preserves, not only physically, but also spiritually. And this idea of a remnant whom God saves is taught by Jesus. He said in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it, but the, the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. And Jesus teaches that the reason there are only a few who find this narrow gate is because for anyone to find it, God has to open their eyes and grant them life. Jesus said in John 6, 65, no one can come to me unless the Father, unless it's been granted to him from the Father. Now here's the question. Why does God always have a remnant? Why does God save? Well, I'll tell you this, it's, it's not because anything outside of himself is compelling him to do it. No one convinces God to save. Sinners can't make themselves appealing to God such that he feels compelled or even obligated to save them. God doesn't save because he's unwilling to judge. And he doesn't save because he needs something from sinners. Here's why he saves. He's a Savior. He is a Savior. He's a judge, but He's a saving judge. It is the glorious character of God that He loves to save. The Lord says in Isaiah 43, Thus says the Lord, your Creator, O Jacob, and He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And then again in Isaiah 45, the Lord says, There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Through the prophet Ezekiel, the Lord says, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Declares the Lord God. Rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? In the heart of God, there, there's no competition. There's no conflict between His justice and His grace. But the Scripture says that it is His pleasure to show grace to sinners. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul admonishes Timothy to pray for kings and all who are in authority. Why? Because, he says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
We ought to pray for those who are in positions that we would deem impossible to save, like ungodly national leaders, because God delights to save. And He may well use our prayers to bring about a change of course for a nation. Now, He's done it many times before. We see that in Scripture. We've seen it in history. And my friends, He can do it again if He so chooses. In punishing sinners, the Lord puts on display His perfect justice, His righteousness, His faithfulness, His hatred of sin. But in extending grace to sinners, the Lord displays the full panoply of His glorious attributes. And just as the rainbow has many colors that run into each other, in salvation we see that God is not only just, but He is also gracious and merciful and patient and forgiving and loving and kind and gentle and good. You know, it's in the salvation of sinners that we really learn that God is not like us. Isaiah 55 verses 6 to 9 says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord and He will have compassion on him and to our God for He will abundantly pardon. For, He says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. What is he saying there? He's saying if God were like us, there would be no salvation. Only judgment. But glory to God, he is not like us. His thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. He is a saving judge who delights to show mercy and grace to sinners like you and me. Well, in closing, let's consider what, how God's seeing the sin of man, sorrowing over it, handing down a sentence, and yet choosing to save, how, how that is relevant for you and for me. You and I are sinners. You know it. I know it. And most importantly, God knows it. Again, you, you might fool others. We can fool ourselves, but, but we can't fool God because He sees down to our hearts. And God grieves over our sin. He hates how sin has brought both corruption to His design and destruction in the lives of sinners. And His love and His compassion move Him to sorrow over the presence of sin in our life. But he doesn't sulk in his grief. He, his perfect justice meets his sorrow with the promise of righteous retribution in the final day. And because he is a savior, in order to extend grace while also being just, he accomplished his plan to satisfy his justice by providing a substitute. He sent his only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to absorb the full fury of God's justice as He hung on the cross. 
And in so doing, the, the father accepted the sacrifice of the son and showed his approval by raising him from the dead on the third day. And as a result of Christ's sacrifice, all who look to Jesus and trust in his finished work can be saved from the wrath of God. So my friend, if you've been trying to earn your own way to God, reject that as a lie and trust in Jesus. If you've thought that somehow you could escape God's judgment, skirt it, avoid it, run from it, reject that lie and look to Jesus and believe on Him. If you thought you would rather enjoy parting in hell rather than sitting on a cloud in heaven, Reject that comic book theology and believe what the Bible says, that the lake of fire is eternal and excruciating. And look to Jesus and be saved from the wrath of God and you will enjoy eternity on the new earth, which is full of joy and delight and glory forever. My friend, don't play with God's mercy. Don't test his patience. Acknowledge yourself today to be a great sinner and Christ a greater Savior. Believe on Him who is the ark who carries us through safely the wrath of God. Now, beloved church, if this is the, God, the kind of God we worship, should we not give ourselves to proclaim this news to the world? Should we not give ourselves in worship and service to Him who gave us life that we didn't deserve it? Should we not with boldness and courage and love be faithful ambassadors calling to repentance those who God puts in our path? Yes, we should. He is worthy of everything that we have to give to Him because He rescued us from His wrath and gave us life. And so it's our delight to then give back to Him the life that He's given to us. He is the saving judge who sees and who sorrows and sentences and yet who saves for His glory. Now next week, Lord willing, we will dive deeper in how God saves by looking at Genesis 22, where God provides a substitute as a picture of the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. And so I'd encourage you this week to pray and ask the Lord to give you opportunities to share these truths with those that He would put in your path. And perhaps invite someone who needs to hear of this saving God to church next week. Let's pray. And then after we pray, we'll have the benediction. Our Heavenly Father, time does not allow for us to plumb the depths of who you have revealed yourself to be. Lord, I pray that what I have said today has been accurate to your revelation. And that in our own hearts, you would mold us and shape us to a right understanding of you. Lord, would you save? Would you sanctify? 
Would you cause us to be more like your son so that he would be glorified in all things? We ask in Christ's name. Amen.